Welcome to A Story of Us podcast presented by the Anthropology Public Outreach Program at The Ohio State University. Our guest today is our lecturer specializing in primatology, Jeffrey Peterson. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on, Andrew. So our first question is, to begin, could we talk about a book or article that you read recently that struck you? Yeah, that's a great question. And I thought for quite a while just about what to bring up in this context, because there are so many different ways to think about what makes a good article or what makes a good book. And one that came out, we might test the boundaries of recent here, but this was published in 2018 by Radhika Govindrajan. And she is a sociocultural anthropologist by training. I'm in biological anthropology, but this book really resonates, I think, at the interface Mm -hmm. between the sub-disciplines. It's called Animal Intimacies. And in this ethnography, she looks at human-animal relationships from different perspectives. And each chapter focuses on a different animal species. As a primatologist, there is a chapter on monkeys and the relationship between monkeys and humans that I think she does really well. And so I was drawn to the book to read that chapter in particular, but I was struck by the entire composition. It's a really well-structured book that goes over a lot of really key ideas in this emerging field of Mm multi-species ethnography, as it's called, which is really a way of getting at human, non-human animal relationships from a host of domains and perspectives. And so that's a book that I keep turning to. And in previous years, I've taught out of it in upper-level classes because it's it's such a strong text. The next question is, could you briefly define primatology for non-experts? What is it? What are its methods? And what can studying our closest living relatives teach us about both human evolution and behavior? A lot there. Sorry. Yeah, no, it, it's there is a lot to go over with primatology as well. And I think this is one that you can define it through a number of telescoping lenses, right? Sure. So most broadly thinking about primatology as the study of other primates, recognizing that humans are primates, but there are hundreds of other species out there with some really interesting stories. The way that we frame primatological work has shifted from its original inclusion in the anthropological approach back in the mid-20th century or so, where now we are still taking this evolutionary approach, but I think we're providing more nuance because there are some pitfalls that you can you can inadvertently get trapped in. For example, we wouldn't want to make the assumption that the primates living now, like chimpanzees, represent our ancestors, Sure, right? keeping in mind that chimpanzees have gone through five to seven million years of evolution, just like humans have after that split. And so that's something we have to be careful about when we study non-human primates like chimpanzees. We aren't studying our ancestry, but we're studying social dynamics within multi-male, multi-female groups that may have been structured in ways that our hominid ancestors structured their groups in some ways, but could have been vastly different in others too. And so That's the big caveat that we have to keep in mind, that we're looking, if anything, at analogies that could be really interesting, but it's not quite that window to the past that sometimes it gets presented as. It's not one-to-one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's been some really innovative perspectives in primatology over the last couple of decades. There is a field that I was first trained in for my master's project at San Diego State University, under Dr. Aaron Riley, 
And this is the field of ethnoprimatology, mm -hmm. where we apply that ethno prefix, and it means that we are trying to understand the relationship between humans and other primates sure. in that location, but in a substantial way. So going in and having training in sociocultural methods in anthropology to construct interviews and to analyze those data as well as the behavioral data that we're more frequently assessing. Mm -hmm. And so in this way, we're able to get a window into not just the non-human primate lives, but how those lives overlap and intersect with the lives of the human primates that are in the same environment. And I, I think that that's a major contribution that primatology has to offer anthropology now, kind of another way of, of looking at those relationships. So it's almost the interaction between not just the kind of humans are impacting primates in this way, but it's, you know, how is it going back, right? Yeah, definitely. So it's cyclical. Absolutely. Thinking about that kind of mutual mutability between right. human and non-human primate behavior. Our third question is, uh, could you talk a little bit about your specific research from your PhD program? It was about communication and other forms of social interaction along long-tailed macaques in Bali and Indonesia. What was your primary finding or like what was the big takeaway? I know it's a long uh, treat, I'm sure a long, wonderful dissertation, but what was like the primary thing that we would want our, our listeners to know? Yeah, well, as I'm sure you well know, the dissertation can be a rabbit hole. So <laughs> just being able to concisely describe yeah, it is exactly. a skill that we all have to get used to. But so starting off the study species, long-tailed macaques, this is a species that's found throughout mainland Southeast Asia, as well as the Indonesian mm -hmm. archipelago. My research was focused in Bali specifically. And this was through work that I was doing. I did my PhD at the University of Notre Dame under Dr. Augustine Fuentes, who had been doing research in Bali for a couple of decades mm -hmm. before I started working with him. And he was one of the earliest primatologists to start doing research in that location. So following from that early work on just this context between humans in Bali, mostly Balinese Hindus that are practicing Balinese Hinduism mm -hmm. at these temples located often near river ecosystems. Those river ecosystems are perfect for long-tailed macaques. They live in those same areas, mm -hmm. and they will exploit those resources, and they'll find themselves in that same space that's used for temples. And so you have a really rich set of interactions between Balinese people and long-tailed macaques that has quite a long history. And that was the initial focus. But we realized at some point that we hadn't been conducting primatological studies on the long-tailed macaques themselves. We've been uh, focusing, yeah. we as in the primatological community, had been focusing so much on the human, non-human primate aspect. We hadn't really been doing those standard ecological studies of the long-tailed macaques in that region. And so that's what I was doing following from, uh, there was another researcher, Dr. Fanny Broadcorn, who did her dissertation a few years before mine, which was really the push to start studying sure. long-tailed macaques mm -hmm. as long-tailed macaques as well, and seeing what they're up to. And so I was trying to focus in on a specific life history stage, the subadult male stage, because this is the life history stage in which you have to leave your social group. Sure. We call that dispersal. You have to disperse from the group you're born into, into a neighboring group. And this is a process that takes a lot of time. It can take months. I actually had the fortune to witness three dispersal events during my dissertation research, which 
produced some great data that I was just lucky to be there observing. But the subadult male life history stage doesn't have a lot of focus in the literature among long-tailed macaques because it's such an ephemeral life history stage. But it's really important because you have to utilize all these social skills that you've developed growing up in your natal group, the group that you were born into, and then utilize those skills as you transition to a new group. You have to start on the periphery and kind of work your way to the center. And so there's a lot at stake for for these young macaques as, as they're trying to make that transition. So that was a context that I was interested in. And I wanted to focus on interaction because I wanted to utilize the methods of social network analysis, which has been getting a lot of attention in parts of anthropology, especially how humans communicate and are connected to one another. It sort of lends itself to that type of analysis, just how connected we are with things like the internet now. But in primatology, there had historically been a pretty strong contingent of primatologists utilizing social network analysis as well. So I wanted to incorporate that. And really briefly, the biggest finding that I had was between the two sites, which are located, one's on the southern coast of Bali, the other site with another population of macaques is located at a more central location Mm -hmm. in Bali that's inland. And so between those two sites, I noticed that the scale of social interactions, in this case, affiliative behaviors, so friendly behaviors like grooming one another and exchanging affiliative gestures or signals, those rates varied between the population, meaning that for the subadult males in the south and those in the central location, they actually had different social dynamics. In one population, it was more common to engage in affiliative behaviors. They had denser social networks. So what we mean by that is we had social networks where more individuals were exchanging affiliative gestures and they were doing it more frequently than at the other site. And the way that we think about this as primatologists is that it must mean that the experience of being a subadult male as a long-tailed macaque varies based on the population that you're in and the specific social and ecological conditions nearby or that you're developing in, that you're migrating to a new group in. All of those are more important than just a species-specific label. Sure, okay. Long-tailed macaques act this way in this life history stage. So like each population has a different way of showing its cues for coming together or being friends or being, you know, good mates or whatever it might be? Yeah, absolutely. It's a way of thinking about how each population to kind of bridge over into anthropological analysis, Mm -hmm. right? Each population has different way of constituting what's normal social interaction. So each place has different almost social norms in a way. Is that the way you would think about it? I probably wouldn't go so far to classify them as social norms, but you definitely see variation in those social contexts. Gotcha. Okay. That's fascinating. Cool. The next question is about your findings in research on a different sort of behavior. Um, This is about uh, robbing and bartering practices among this same species of macaques, of the long-tailed macaques. Yeah. So robbing and bartering is a really fascinating behavior, and it is... One that we see a lot at this specific site that I was doing research in. So I mentioned I had the two locations. For robbing and bartering, we're thinking of the southern coastal location, which is at the temple of Uluwatu. Mm. We see a lot of robbing and bartering there. Though robbing and bartering has been indicated to occur in other parts of the world, India, 
for example, you have macaques, mm-hmm. a different species of macaque, but engaging in similar behaviors. At Uluwatu, there's almost a system of robbing and bartering. And so it has attracted systematic analysis wow, by okay. primatologists. What I was interested in doing, because this was still part of my broader project on subadult male social relationships. And so the data set that I have is only with the subadult male focal animals that I was focusing on. So if anything, that's part of a limitation to this particular sure. data okay. set. Because when you have such a unique behavior like robbing and bartering, that has some publications, but we're still really just starting to dig into the causes and contexts of robbing and bartering, it would be nice to have a broader data set. Mm-hmm. And so my results don't have as much generalizability as a data set including adult males, adult females, and a broader range of life history stages. Sure. But it was still interesting within that limited scope. Because it was early on, part of what I was interested in doing was describing the behavior at all. So other researchers coming in later have a set of definitions to utilize. And so I defined it as having three parts, the initial robbery event, and then there is this intermediate second part where the macaque is manipulating the object. Usually they're just holding it, sometimes they're chewing it, sometimes they're tearing it apart. It can manifest in a number of different ways, but it's the second phase of the event. And then the third event is the exchange event, which sometimes could be loosely defined as barter, but it doesn't quite fit all of the anthropological standards yeah, yeah, of, of what the true definition of bartering is. But it is this kind of exchange. And so for the exchange at Uluwatu, the temple staff know that the macaques are going to steal things during the day. So they prepare little bags full of seasonal fruits that the macaques don't have readily available. Things like rambutan, if they're in season, is something that the macaques really like. And so they will have these bags prepared when the macaque steals something and they're holding it. The staff member will come over, toss the bag of fruit to the macaque, and the macaque will usually drop the the item that they stole and take the food item. And then the staff member will grab the stolen object and hand it back to the person, the tourist usually, that the item was stolen from. And it's interesting because there's almost a protocol that has to be followed. But it's an unspoken protocol because we don't share language with macaques. And so we can't figure this out overtly, but there's a way to conduct the exchange that tourists just largely aren't able to do. They can try to do an exchange, but it usually doesn't work, and it's a staff member that has to do it. So as a kind of pilot approach. It wasn't a pilot study, but it was an initial approach into this behavior. I was taking a broad lens and I was just interested in other things like what items do they tend to collect or do they tend to steal? And it was mostly footwear, like sandals for the most part, and eyeglasses, Mm -hmm. sunglasses or eyeglasses. Those had exchange rates of just under 60%. So 60% of the time, just less than 60% of the time, the tourists would get those objects back. I think the only item that had a 100% exchange rate were electronics, tablets, and cameras, and cell phones. And that might be more due to the persistence of the human in getting that back sure. than anything. Of course. Because they're not going to give up, and the staff member recognizes how important those items are. So they're pretty persistent, too. 
It says something too that the macaques are willing to give up the phone right away. They see it, they're like, nah, no thanks. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. That goes into right, what is the use value for right. the macaque? Uh, of the course. phone doesn't have as near as much use value as it does for us. And so they still just need that food. Yeah. <laughs> Whether it's fruit or peanuts. And then the last thing that I found because I had this I had this data set of long-tailed macaques and their social networks. And mm. so I plugged robbing and bartering behavior into oh, the social cool. network just to see if we could predict anything based on it. And in one group, there was an apparent pattern that emerged in that the more social connections an individual had, a subadult male had in that group, the more likely they were to be efficient robbers right. and barters. Okay. So this means they're more likely to succeed in their attempts. So they took fewer attempts and they were more successful at them. And so this is something for me to think about what it means and ultimately collect more data. We really need more data to see whether this pattern holds true across a wider range of individuals from a wider range of life history stages. But it could mean, and this is just this is just speculation here, so it's not we don't have any causal evidence, but it's the way that we're thinking about what it could mean is that are those individuals somehow more easily able to develop the skills necessary to steal something? Because you have to come in by surprise. You have to be able to navigate that interspecies exchange event. And so there could be a level of enskillment. It also could mean that with increased social interactions, they're more easily able to buffer stress associated with the risky behavior of robbing and bartering. So those are the kind of tantalizing questions that more data would allow us to answer. Our next question is, what do you enjoy most about teaching anthropology? What are your techniques for getting students invested and interested in this field? We could talk about anthropology in general or primatology specifically. The great thing about anthropology is that it really lends itself to be a class that students find really captivating, even if they don't go into it expecting that. And I think that's the good thing about teaching anthropology. It gives us this wealth of material that we can present to students maybe about topics that they're already familiar with, but in ways they haven't really ever thought about. And one of the most basic approaches to that is the holistic approach in anthropology, which really does help set us apart from other fields in social sciences or other scientific disciplines, where we have the four-field approach, archaeology, biological anthropology, cultural anthropology, and linguistic anthropology, which, as I teach it to students, speaks to the importance of taking multiple lines of analysis for understanding any one question about humans and our behavior. And it's something so simple, but it doesn't always cross people's mind because sometimes our ways of thinking can be so canalized in in particular directions that we never step back and see how they're intersecting with these other parts of our lives that may appear to be unrelated. And I love being able to introduce students to that kind of mindset. It takes me back to when I was a graduate student at Notre Dame and I was TAing for Jim McKenna, Dr. Jim McKenna, who is just a wonderful anthropologist and a wonderful person. And he would teach these really big intro to anthropology classes. And he would end the semester by saying, anthropology is like a set of glasses. Once you learn about it, you put them on, it helps you see the world differently. And he said, and students, once you put them on, you can never take them off, right? You start to see connections where you didn't know they existed before. 
And it's really compelling. And I really like having new groups of students every semester to go on that journey with. And I think they find it really rewarding. And so my biggest technique really is just showing them how enthusiastic I am about anthropology as a discipline, about what it can do, what it can provide, how it can help us understand more about the world around us, but also how it can help individual students navigate their own experiences. Because like I said, a lot of times students have these experiences, maybe they just haven't been introduced to certain terminologies. Right, they don't have the word for it yet. Yeah, exactly. And so they can't really frame it or contextualize it in ways that, that we do in anthropology. And so once they're introduced to that, like, oh, this experience that I had, it wasn't just this one-off thing, but th- this is really part of this subset of, of our yeah. society. And it's this theme that a lot of other people experience too. And so it can kind of help them navigate their real lives, even though when they're signing up for the class, maybe they're just doing it as a GE requirement. And that's something that I really find rewarding as students come in with maybe low expectations and then they leave really energized about, about the field. So the last question I have is, is there anything else you would like our listeners to know about your research or teaching or anything along those lines? I am working on a few things right now, one of which is still in the really early phases of development. So I don't have too many specific details to get into, but I'm really utilizing my position here as a lecturer where my primary responsibility is teaching introductory courses like Introduction to Anthropology mm-hmm. and Introduction to Biological Anthropology, which I love because this is when you're able to really present students early on, most of, for, most, for the most part, early on in their academic careers, yeah. you're introducing them to these new ideas. And so I'm developing a project to start in the spring looking at the effectiveness of particular classroom interventions or engaging activities, their effectiveness in terms of how students can understand the material maybe better than in a traditional lecture setting. And so that's something that I have in the works that I'm really excited about. And in terms of primatology, I have an exciting collaboration with a historian, Dr. Felipe Fernandez Armesto, and a philosopher, Dr. Gregory Raddick. And we are co-authoring a book about the history of primatology. Specifically, we're taking an old text published in the 1890s by a primatologist, I guess you could call him, R.L. Garner, who was one of the first to actually go out into the field, and he constructed this cage that he was living in for a period of time. And he was through that cage uh, meant to be observing chimpanzees and gorillas. And so he writes about his experience. And what we're doing is going through and annotating that text, updating it from contemporary primatology, from the historical aspect of it, and also from the field of philosophy. That's so cool. And so it's been really fun putting that together. Looking forward to that coming out. Awesome. Well, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for the time today. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. And thank you, Andrew.